Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. Uh, it is great to be with you again. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship again this morning. Uh, especially, it's always exciting talking about new small groups and seeing that happen. And, and um, you know, like Aaron was saying, our heart for planning new small groups is, is about wanting to multiply our efforts in growing the kingdom and investing in those things. But the other thing that's just so important, I think I wanted to point out just to take a moment to do is that sometimes I think the way that it can be easy to think about multiplication in the sense of crowd control, right? And that like, oh, well, these small groups, they're not small anymore, so I guess we need to make some more, so they're back to being small or something like that. But the reality is, is that the reason why we want to plant more small groups is because we want to make space for people who aren't yet a part of those communities to be able to be plugged in. And the reality is that like, when there's too many people in a small group, it's just not a place where if you're new or you can feel welcomed in. It's a lot harder to do that. And so a big part of our heart in multiplying small groups and in continuing to do that is creating spaces where people who aren't yet already plugged in can become plugged in and can find relationships and can grow in their faith. And so if you are new or if you're thinking about getting plugged in at River city, just to know like the whole reason for doing that is making space uh, so that you can feel welcomed in those communities and we'd love to have you get plugged in and continue to grow in your faith, whether that's meeting Jesus for the first time or growing in what it looks like to follow him. And so I just want to say that you're welcome in those communities. So uh, excited as well to uh, continue studying God's Word with you guys this morning. We're in the middle of a series as we begin the new year here that's all about identity. You see, all of us ask the questions about our, our identity. We ask the questions about who, who we really are and what defines us and what our purpose is and what we're here for. What, what are we supposed to be doing with our lives? And we ask the questions about where we look for our value and our identity and our worth and our security. And and as we started our series, we saw how the Bible answers those questions in an altogether different way than the way that the rest of the world answers those kinds of questions. You see, instead of looking inward to discover and define ourselves like the world we live in tells us to do, the Bible says that the way you really discover who you really are and what you were made to be is not by looking inward, but instead by looking upwards at Jesus. Because we see throughout Scripture that Jesus both demonstrates for us who we were made to be, but it's also through his death and his resurrection that we're actually able to be renewed and restored to actually become the people that he makes us to be. And so we saw how on the most foundational level, the identity that Jesus both shows us and saves us unto is that we might be God's image-bearing people, that with our actions, with our lives, that we would reflect his nature and his character into the world. And we saw how that's such a life-giving identity because it means that you don't actually have to merit or seek out or earn an identity or significance or a worth, but you have it intrinsically by being made in God's image. And every human ever has that reality built into who we are. But it's also a good news because that identity infuses meaning and purpose into every area of our lives. And so even the parts of our lives that are difficult or painful or even just mundane, what happens? is as we see ourselves as God's image-bearing, glory-reflecting people, it gives meaning and purpose in profound and real ways into every part of our existence. 
The problem, though, that we saw at the end of that week is that instead of letting God define us and resting in the identity that he gives us, what happens is that we choose to define ourselves and we cling to the manufactured identities that we make for ourselves. And what we're really doing is is taking God's place as king and creator. And that's at the heart of what sin really is. It's a rejection of his good authority and And so our sin, what it does is it causes us not only to fail to image God rightly and to reflect him rightly, but it causes us to fail to honor his image in the lives of others. And so our sin, what happens is our sin causes our proverbial image-bearing mirrors to be broken and shattered. And the good news of the gospel, though, is that where we failed, Jesus did not. He bore the image of God perfectly on our behalf, and it's through faith in him that he begins to put our mirrors back together so that over time what happens is more and more we increasingly reflect the God whose image we, re- image we bear, we reflect him. But Jesus doesn't just secure our redemption and our restoration. We saw last week how he secures our identity as forgiven image bearers. We see because it's his shed blood on the cross that's the means by which we're not just renewed and restored, but that we're able to actually be completely forgiven. We talked about how that we have a need for forgiveness, that sin demands a penalty, that there must be a penalty paid. Otherwise, God is not just, and therefore, he's not good. And so Jesus, in Jesus, God pays the penalty that our sin deserves. He was our atoning sacrifice we saw last week in 1 John. And he absorbed all of God's just wrath for our sin. But we saw as well in 1 John chapter 2 that he's our advocate before the Father. And so he stands before the Father on our behalf, demanding that God be just and receive his payment on our behalf and set us free. And so the reality is is that our identity as forgiven image bearers means that we can actually be free from from guilt and shame and all those kinds of, in condemnation. And the good news doesn't stop there because what I want to show you this morning as we continue to study God's word and, and take a look at the identity that we have that God offers us through faith in Christ is that the identity we're given in Christ isn't just that of renewed and forgiven image-bearing employees of God, but rather that we are adopted children who are dearly loved by God as a good father. And understanding and resting in your identity as a child of God through faith in Jesus, I think it radically transforms our lives in a really huge and powerful ways, and it transforms our relationship with God. And I think that it is one of, if not the primary differentiating factor between a life that is just characterized by religiosity and a life that's characterized by a relationship with the King and Creator of the universe. And so to that end, let's pray. We'll dive into a passage in Galatians chapter 3 and 4 this morning. God, thank you so much for your word and for our time together in it. God, we're grateful that you want to speak to us and remind us about what is true about us because of faith in Jesus. And so God, I just come to you this morning, especially I just sense my own need for you and the reality that like there is nothing in my notes that has any power to change anybody or to be good news without you doing it, God. And so, um, God, I need you to be able to teach and preach your word with any kind of meaning and purpose and with any worth to it. God, but we need you as well to enable us to hear and respond to you. And so, God, we ask um, by your grace that you would enable us to hear the good news of your word and the identity you offer us through faith in Christ as as the good news it is. 
And so we need you for all of that, God. And we're, we're so grateful that when we come to you in our need, uh, you love to meet us there. And so we ask for our good and for your glory that you would this morning. So, amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 26. Reads this way. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of faith, uh, children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were under slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. All right, there is a lot going on in our passage this morning, uh, far more than we have time to, uh, to dig every bit of detail out of. But all of it begins with this all-important phrase, in Christ. You see, everything I'm about to say this morning is predicated on that reality. You see, a lot of people, I think, wrongly assume that every human is a child of God, right? And while it is true that everyone is an image bearer of God, the reality is that not everyone has a relationship with God as his child, and Paul says in verse 26, it's if you put your faith in Jesus. Verse 27, if you have clothed yourself, wrapped yourself up in him. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then, he says, then you are a child of God. And I point that out not to be exclusive. I point that out not to, to exercise some kind of narrow-minded thinking, but, but it's to say from the beginning is that the reality is that this incredible identity that we're offered as children of God is only true of those who belong to Christ through faith. It's only true of those who belong to Christ through faith. And my prayer this week and this morning has been that God, by his grace, might help those of you for whom that reality is not yet true to see the beauty and the magnitude and the goodness of the identity as a child of God that he offers you through faith and that you might lay hold of it by faith this morning. But also my prayer is that for those of you for whom that reality is already true, that it might actually be good news again to your hearts this morning. You see, the reality is, is that the default mode which we relate to God is not through uh, the relationship between being a child and a father. See, the default mode we tend to relate to God through is, is the context of a, like an employee-employer relationship. And we'll get more into that, but the reality is, is, that, is that seeing God as a father and relating to him as a child, it changes everything about our relationship with him and with the world. 
And so let me take, what I want to do is take a look at what that means, the, what it means for us to be children of God and the implications of that reality. And we're going to kind of look at it in two main sections this morning. And the first is, is that the passage we see, it talks about how our identity as children of God is fundamentally first a change of status. It's a change of status. Verses 4 and 5 says, but when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, verse 5 is full of all kinds of legal language. That word that's translated there as redeem, it's this very specific Greek word that it means to pay the price that secures a slave's freedom. It's a, a legal term, right? But, but the passage doesn't just stop there. It goes on to, to show that there's a purpose. That legal transaction was just a means to, a, to another end. It was a means to another legal action, right? He says at the end of verse 5, so that you might receive adoption adoption to sonship. Now the reality is, is that adoption is a legal matter, both then and now. There, there are legal ramifications for that reality. And in the Greco-Roman world, adoption was this kind of legal institution, but it almost universally occurred in the circumstances where there was a wealthy individual who maybe had a large estate or a lot of property or whatever it might be, a lot of wealth, and, and, but they didn't have somebody to inherit it. And so what happened is that they would, they would adopt someone to become their heir. And that adopted son, it was always a son because women couldn't inherit property at that time. And, and they would be given all of the rights and all of the privileges of a natural born son. In fact, that's what that word sonship is referring to. It's, a, there's, it's this single word in the original language, but it has this bigger idea where it's trying to talk about the idea of what it means to have the full rights of a son. And what happens is that in, in the Greco-Roman world, just like it is today, adoption is this complete and utter status change, right? When the legal papers went through, in a, in a second, the status had changed that now whoever that person was before, it didn't matter. They were now an heir. They were now a son. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of their previous state and placed in a new status altogether as a son of his new father. All of his old debts were instantly canceled. And in the effect, the adoptee started a new life as a part of a new family with all of the rights and privileges of a natural born son. See what Paul's trying to articulate here, right? is that that's what happens because of the gospel through faith in Christ. Is that we go from being nobodies to being adopted sons of God with the full rights of sonship. We become heirs to this incredible inheritance that is beyond comparison. We go from, we become children of the great king and creator of the universe. And so we go from the lowest of low statuses to the highest of high. There, there is not a more prestigious, there is not a more beneficial, a more fruitful kind of status to have. And, and that reality of this status change is really important because what happens oftentimes, I think, when we think about what happens with regards to our faith and how salvation works is that, is that it's just a removal of bad things. 
We oftentimes tend to think about our salvation in the sense that it's a removal of our sin or of our guilt or of our shame, and it absolutely is those things, but there's more going on there. We see it's not just that things are taken away from us by faith in Christ, it's that we're given something as well. You see, you don't, you're not just, you don't just have your sins pardoned, you get adopted, which means that you have this new legal status in God's eyes, that he sees you through the lens which he sees his own son, that you are legally his. You have the full rights of a son. And what's so incredible here is that Paul is saying it's not just Roman sons who God adopts into his family, but it's all those who would put their faith in Jesus. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, if you're in Christ. You see, you have to understand how radical that would have been. Women don't get adopted in the Roman Empire because it's not a benefit to the estate owner. But God is the one who is not adopting those out of a need to pass something on, but out of the abundance of the goodness of who he is. And he adopts all those who would come by faith and put their faith in him. And so if you put your faith in Jesus, Paul says then what happens is you have a new status, an altogether different status. You are a child of God. But the reality is, is that our identity as children of God isn't merely just a change in legal status. It is also, and I would say just as importantly, if not even more importantly, is that it is a relationship kind of change. And that's the second thing we see in our, as, about our identity as children of God in the passage, right? Verse 7, he says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. But verse 6, he says, because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his own son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. You see that word that's translated there as Abba, it's, a, it's actually really hard to translate because we don't really have a, a very good equal word for that in our own language. It's a, an Aramaic word that was used by children both when they were young to refer to their parents, but also again later on as adults, adult children who use that language to refer to their parents. And so it's this kind of term that's oozing with this closeness of relationship and fondness and, and nearness to, to one who you love and who you know. I don't know about you, when I, when I go home and I see my mom after a long time, I give her a big hug and I say, Mama, I love you. It's this term, I, it's a reminder that I not just was once her child, but I still am. And there's a nearness and a closeness and a relationship that she doesn't have with anyone else besides my brothers and sisters. See, and the point that Paul's trying to make here is that God causes us by his spirit to relate to him like that. That we might not call him boss, employer, father dearest, but papa, dad. It's a term of nearness and closeness. You see, only a child gets to use that kind of language to talk about their parents. Not an employee, not a relative, not a friend, only a child. Because the reality is, is that what God is trying to show us throughout Scripture is that he is not an employer, he's not a boss, but rather God chooses to reveal himself over and over and over again throughout Scripture as a father. 
And the reality is, is that I understand that that language has a lot of baggage in our day. Some of you come from homes where your dad was absent or distant or would have just been better if he was. And so when you hear the idea that God is a father, that is not good news to you. It's hard to hear. It brings up all kinds of pain and hurt and, and a sense of longing and need and, and brokenness. But the reality is that when the Bible describes God as a father, it's talking about the best kind of father there could possibly be, the kind of dad that every single one of us longs for, the kind of father who loves unconditionally, who both deeply knows his kids and also cares about them, who corrects and does it always with the purest of motives, longing for our good, one who isn't quick to anger but who is relentlessly and endlessly patient. One who has not prioritized his own needs, but actively sacrifices for the good and the needs of those who are his kids. One of the most important things that I can do as a dad for my own young kids is not to train them in theology or to quiz them on Bible stories, but is to show them that kind of fatherly love. A kind of love that is unmerited and unearned and unquestioned. A kind of relationship where one day they grow up and they read these words in scripture that God is a father and that there is kids and that's good news for them. That they say, I know what a dad who loves me looks like. And if my dad was good, then God must be much better. That's what I want them to see and to know. In my imperfect example, I want them to have a picture of a God who is good news as their father. Because here's the reality. How you relate to God changes everything. How you relate to God changes everything. And if you functionally view God through the lens of a boss, what happens is you will always have this kind of employer-employee mentality and relationship with him. A kind of a relationship that's always based on what I do for you, right? An employee is always thinking that they need to do enough good things to make sure the boss is pleased, that they need to make sure they work hard so they earn their salary, that they need to make sure they don't offend the boss or, or get fired or whatever it might be. It's a real kind of relationship that's always based on your performance where your love and acceptance is always conditional and so you're always trying to make yourself worthy of God's approval. And you're always worried you haven't done enough, that you're not earning your salary, you're not earning your keep. And the reality is, is that kind of a relationship is endlessly exhausting because the truth is you never measure up. You are your own worst critic. You are always wildly more aware than everyone else of how desperately you fall short. And so when God is your boss, your relationship is conditionally based on what you do for him. But hear this, because God is not your employer, but is your father. What happens is your relationship with him is not based on what you do for him, but it's based on who you are to him. It's a relationship that's based on God's unconditional commitment to his children. The reality is, is that for all of you who have kids, what you know is that your, your love for them cannot change. 
Your love for them is not rooted in what they do for you. It's based on who they are to you. I remember when my kids were first born, I loved them immediately with this unexplainable kind of love for them. Not because they were impressive. Spoiler alert, any of you who don't have kids yet, kids are unimpressive people, right? They do not bring a lot to the table except sleep deprivation, right? Like, it's not like you look at your brand new kids and you're like, wow, you are bringing so much to this table, right? I am getting such a humongous benefit from you. No, like the relationship is not that way. It's a whole lot of pouring out, right? It's not based on what they bring to the table. It's not based on what they do. What happens is as a parent, you just love your kids immediately with an unexplained, the kind of love I, it's just incredible the way it happens. You see, and it's so important that you see that you are not God's employee, but that you are his beloved child, a son or daughter of his, whom he chose to adopt at great cost to himself. You see, the reality is that so many of us as Christians go through your lives with this ongoing suspicion that God is just constantly watching over your shoulder, that he's just kind of trying to see if, if the choice that he made was really worth it, right? That, that if it wasn't a mistake to just adopt you or to love you, and that if you don't measure up that you're, he's going to revoke your privileges, the reality is what happens is so often we fail to understand that God's not merely a judge who has pardoned you, but he is a father who has adopted and loved you. Ephesians chapter 1 says that in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill, which is saying that nobody forced him to love you. Nobody forced him to sacrificially give of him his own family and his own self so that he might welcome you in. It was not an obligation. And he does it out of love for you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we might be called his children, and that's what we are. You see, Sinclair Ferguson, one pastor, he puts it like this. He says, just like the prodigal, we have a native ability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. He says, we are slow to realize the implications of it for we have the status as sons, but we live with the mindset of hired servants. Church, you are not an employee of God. He's not constantly giving you performance reviews. You are his beloved children if by faith you have put your trust in Jesus. And that changes everything. God loves you and sees you as he does his own son through faith in him. That changes everything because it means what happens is you get to rest in and work out of the security and confidence and love that you already have in that identity. I was scrolling through my YouTube feed this week and I came across this video of an interview with Kobe Bryant and he was talking about how one summer when he was young, maybe 10 or 11, he played in a, a, a pickup league or a, a summer camp of basketball and he talked about how throughout the entire summer he scored zero points, right? And his dad was like, how is that even possible? I'm like, I was terrible, right? That's what he's talking about, right? But what happens is that he tells about how he comes to his dad at the end of the summer and he's just distraught. Like he's, just, he's just sad. He's crying about this reality, right? And his father sits him down and he says, Kobe, 
Whether you score zero or 60, I will love you no matter what. And Kobe just responds, he says, from there I had all the confidence I needed. I had all the hope, I had all the security I needed to give my best and even to fail. He says, but heck with that. I'm not scoring zero, I'm going to score 60, right? And he does, right? He goes on to become one of the greatest NBA players in, in the history of the game, right? And the reality is, is that that's the kind of thing that happens for us to an, to an infinitely more powerful degree with God. You see, because when you get that you already have God's unmerited and unearned love that you cannot lose, that you couldn't earn, and that you cannot mess up, then what happens is it fills you with this kind of incredible security and confidence and boldness and enables you to walk out into the world, not trying to endlessly earn and prove yourself, but with a kind of hope and confidence that allows you to walk out into the world with boldness in the midst of it. And at the same time, what it does is it doesn't just fuel you to endlessly pursue your own desires. What the reality is, is that when you see God's love for you and his adoption of you through faith in Christ, is that you're not motivated to endlessly pursue your own needs and longings. What happens is you become endlessly committed to being who he saved you to be. Because what you get is that God has adopted and loved you as a son when you didn't earn it and couldn't deserve it and can't mess it up. And so you long to be the person he's made you to be. You long to be the one he says you already are. That's what 1 Peter is talking about in chapter 14. He, he's writing to these Christians and he calls them towards obedience and a life pursuing holiness. And he says this, he says, as obedient children... Don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Spoiler alert, they weren't obedient children already. Their lives were full of sin and constantly messed up. Why does he say as obedient children then? Because that's their status. That is who God says they are. Because in Christ, God sees them as he sees his own son. And Jesus is truly the obedient child. The one who perfectly obeyed the father in everything. And so what happens is you get his status. You get his identity. The father sees him and he sees you in the same way. And so what happens is, is that the world says your identity is always found in what you do, but the Bible says your, your doing is always a result of your identity, that who you are is the thing that produces what you do and, and how you live. And so the invitation for us as Christians is that we might rest in the identity of who God says we are as his children, and that might fuel us to live lives that reflect that reality, that we might image him rightly as our good and loving father. See, but it, that reality of our identity as children, it, it doesn't just fuel our lives of obedience. It also frees us from worry and anxiety and fear. You see, for us as Christians who believe the gospel, put our faith in Jesus, God's become your adopted father. And seeing him that way and relating to him that way, being with him that way, that's really the cure for anxiety and worry and fear. Because the reality is that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he rhetorically asks the disciples this question. He says, if God cares for the birds, if he clothes the flowers with such endless splendor, if they don't worry about things, he says, won't he care for you? Verse 26, he says, for you, are you not much more valuable than them? See, the reality is, is that when you relate to God based on an employee-employer relationship, you are always afraid to ask him for things. 
Or you come in pride thinking you've earned it and deserved it. But when you're a kid, you get to come to your father and you just ask him because you know he loves you and you know he's good. There is no good thing I would withhold from my kids if I had the ability to give it to them. There is no good thing I would withhold from them if I had the ability to give it to them. And God is an endlessly better father than I am, and his resources are unlimited. And so that frees you from worry, and it frees you from fear, and it lets you rest because you know that he's a good father who loves you, who longs to give you what you need, and so you get to come to him not in pride, thinking you've earned something, and not in fear, thinking you don't deserve it, but as a beloved child who just gets to come to his father and ask for whatever they need. The problem is that we forget that. We forget that God's a father, and we relate to him like a boss. It's a famous poem by Elizabeth Cheney. She is talking about this parable that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And she puts it this way. She said, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. We see what happens is we forget that God's our good and loving Father. And so we're full of worry and fear. And yet when we choose to see him as our good Father, we get to come to him with hope and confidence. We're free from worry, we're free from fear. He is an endlessly good, overwhelmingly generous, and absolutely sovereign Father. You get to hope in him and trust in him. It's good news. You see, and the reality is, is that throughout Scripture what we see is that God adopts us into his family. He rescues, redeems us, not just so that it might end with us. But what happens is that the reality we see in Scripture is that whatever God has done to you, he now wants to do through you. You see, when you get that you have been adopted and loved by the great king and creator of the universe, not based on what you brought to the table, not based on your merit, not worth your performance, but when you see that he chose to love you because he chose to do it. What happens is you start relating to people like that. You, start, you stop seeing people endlessly as based on what they bring to the table and whether or not they benefit you or not. And instead you start to sacrificially live in a kind of way that loves others at cost to yourself because you see that that's how God has loved and related to you. And you stop looking at others based purely on what they offer you and can bring to you and benefit you. But you look at others and you see them as people who God loves himself and so he calls you to love with them. And so what happens is we start to actually love God, not just obey him. He's not just an employer you're afraid of messing up in front of, but he's a father who you love and long to please for everything. And you start to love others like family, even though they're not, because that's how God treated you. You see, your identity as an adopted child of God, it changes everything. As we close, I just want to come back to the reality that the identity we have as beloved children of God, it comes by faith. It comes by faith. You see, adoption is not a result of a child's effort. It's a result of a father's intention. 
So some of you are here this morning and you are tired and you are exhausted and you always come to God with this fearful attitude because you are trying to earn something you can only receive. And you keep finding yourself unworthy because you are. And so the reality, the invitation, the good news of the gospel is that God offers you adoption as sons of his, children of him with full rights of his children in spite of the fact that you couldn't earn it, in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it. And if you could, you would lose it because you would mess it up. But he gives it to you by virtue of his faith in his own son. And so you get to have an altogether new status and an altogether new relationship that transforms your relationship with God and with people. And it happens because of faith in Jesus. And so what we're remembering together when we take communion and what we're remembering as we celebrate the message of the cross is that it's through Jesus that we have faith. It's the reality is that, is that Jesus is the reason why we get to be called sons is because Jesus on the cross gave up his sonship. He allowed the Father to, to remove him from the family so that you and I might be adopted into when you get that, when, when that reality sinks deeply into your heart, what wells up in you is a love for God that looks like a life given to him. That's the only way that happens. So communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible's clear that it's faith alone in Jesus that does that. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, I just want to know how glad I am that you are here, how welcome you are in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Hold off on just going through religious rituals and going through the motions. That's stuff employees do. Employees go through the motions. You see, but when we see ourselves as children of a good father, we're motivated about of love and joyful dependence. And so by faith this morning, you get to come maybe for the first time in love and joyful dependence on the Father and go back and take communion. Do it out of a heart of glad humility, receiving the identity he offers you as his child so that you might rest in it and that you might work out of it. They might live unto him because of who he says you already are. And as you do, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Talk with him. Are you relating to him like a boss or like a father? What's keeping you from doing him? What's keeping you from seeing him as a good father? And how does that reality of your identity as a child, as an identity as, as a beloved child, how does that fuel your love and obedience unto him? Not because you're earning something, but in a joyful and humble dependence to honor the one who saved you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning God, with uh, mixed up motives. God, we often see you as a boss, as an employer, not as a good father who you long for us to see you as. God, we confess that so often we, we try to relate to you based on what we do for you. And we're just so grateful, God, this morning that the good news of the gospel is that, that you don't relate to us that way. You relate to us based on who we are to you that we are your beloved children, not because we earned it, not through our performance, but because you chose to do it through faith in Christ. 
So help us, God, for those who are here this morning and have not yet received the identity you give them as children of you. God, would you cause them by faith to trust in you for it completely. And for the rest of us, God, for those who have put their faith in you, God, would you cause the reality of our adopted sonship to be good news to our hearts that gives us an incredible security and confidence and hope and fills us with a love for you that works itself out in lives given to you completely. We pray, amen.